Green Street Radio is a production of Grassroots Environmental Education. Learn more about us and our programs at www.grassrootsinfo.org or follow us on Facebook at Grassroots Info and on Twitter at Grassroots E-N-V-E-D. Welcome to Green Street, a project of grassroots environmental education. I'm your host, Doug Wood, here with my co-host, Patty. There are about 7 billion people in the world today, and about 5 billion of those people have cell phones. Five out of every seven all over the world. The growth of the cell phone industry has been nothing less than absolutely spectacular. Cell phones are great to stay in touch with family, to take quick pictures, and text with friends. The new generation of smartphones are cool. They're mini computers that can run programs, surf the web, download movies and music, and keep you completely connected to the digital world. But how safe are these devices? Is this just one more example of how we learn, often too late, that the things we thought were so great turned out to come with a set of unintended consequences? In this case, health effects that may not show up for a generation or more? On this edition of Green Street, we're joined by Dr. Deborah Lee Davis, founding director of the world's first center for environmental oncology and the founder of the Environmental Health Trust, a nonprofit devoted to researching and controlling avoidable environmental health threats. She is a recent winner of the Carnegie Science Medal and is the author of a new book about cell phones called Disconnect. Here's our interview with Deborah Lee Davis. Let me start off and just ask you, you know, you're a scientist, and like many scientists, you started out being a little skeptical about the claims that radiation associated with cell phones might be harmful to humans. And now you've written a book with a subtitle that says, The Truth About Cell Phone Radiation, What the Industry Has Done to Hide It, and How to Protect Your Family. So tell us about how this conversion took place. Well, about six years ago, I had three cell phones, and I was priding myself on the fact that I could keep up with my grad students and follow some of the new geeky applications. Uh, And I began to hear that there were some concerns about the issue. The concerns actually were expressed um, by activists, and frankly, I dismissed them. And um, I learned that they were right and I was wrong, that in fact there are real reasons for concern. And I learned that because I started to look at what was happening in France and Israel and Finland in countries with a lot longer history of using cell phones. And I was astonished to see that in um, Britain, in 2000, an eminent commission um, had advised the government uh, that it would made sense to issue precautions about children using cell phones in the year 2000. And frankly, when I first heard about the Stuart Commission, I was very skeptical, because after all, science scientists become scientists because we don't you deal believe with facts. everything. Sure. That's right. right. We yeah. like to deal with the facts, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And I knew that it was physically impossible, so it was believed, for non-ionizing radiation from cell phones to cause any damage. And I believed that until I started to look into the science and I found out that I was wrong. That, in fact, non-ionizing radiation, which is weak from cell phones, is using the same frequency as a microwave oven. Although a microwave oven uses 1,000 watts of power and a cell phone uses today less than one watt of power, it's not the power, uh, it's the pulsed nature of the signal that may be more problematic. And I began to get very concerned as I plowed into the field and saw that there was experimental evidence showing that the same kind of signal could disrupt DNA, could weaken the blood-brain barrier, 
and could cause a host of other problems. So do you think it's, it, in terms of why other scientists haven't been able to make this same breakthrough, is it because they just accept on face value that it couldn't possibly be? Um, and it's not because they've read the research and rejected it, is that right? Uh, it is certainly not because they've read the research and rejected it, because the research that is out there is uh, fairly compelling. Now, in fact, another part that I document in my book, Disconnect, is that industry has been diabolically effective in following the playbook of tobacco here. And whenever scientists first started to produce evidence in the 1990s that cell phone radiation could damage DNA, uh, the scientists themselves were attacked. The funding that they received was withdrawn, and other scientists were brought in to try to discredit their work. In one case, which I document in my book, when a scientist who was brought in to discredit the work actually showed that the work was correct, he and the original scientists all lost their funding. Mm. Well, not terribly surprising, I guess. Well, very disappointing, but I think the world has changed now. That's why I've written this book, and that's why people from industry are reaching out to me, because they know that they have to design safer phones. In fact, if you go to our website, environmentalhealthtrust.org, you can click on the fine print warnings that come with all new smartphones. The Apple 4 says that you cannot keep it in your pocket safely. It says if you keep it in your pocket, you can exceed the FCC exposure guidelines, mm. and that you have to hold the phone uh, five-eighths of an inch from the body. Well, very few people do that, and the reality is these fine print warnings can be found on all new smartphones because industry is aware that if you put the phone right smack next to the head or the body, you're violating the safety standards. But they put it in the small print, I assume, to avoid legal problems down the road, but not because they really want to advertise the fact that there might be a problem. Well, you'll have to ask them why they put it <laughs> in the point type. Yeah. Okay, I want to talk about standards for a second. Uh, and we talk, in your book, you talk about the standards that were set in 1993 for cell phones being based on something called the Standard Anthropomorphic Man, or SAM. What kind of a man is that, and how does, how does that relate to the average person? Well, the head size of Sam, we call him for short, Standard Anthropomorphic Man, was taken from the top 10th percentile of military recruits uh, in 1989. So he's a rather big, beefy guy with a head that weighed about 11 pounds. He stood over six foot tall and weighed over 200, 200 plus pounds. And that head was used, and it was measured how long it would take the non-ionizing radiation from the cell phone uh, to cause heat in the brain. It was an acute effect that was used to set the standards for cell phones back in the early 1990s, long before most of us used cell phones at all, and at a time when very few people talked on their phone for more than a few minutes at a time. Those standards are clearly out of date because we've got billions of cell phone users who have much smaller heads, much smaller bodies, and talk on the phone, unfortunately, for hours a day. In fact, you cannot use today's cell phones for a smaller head and a smaller body without violating those standards. So let me make sure I understand. They were only looking for heat. They weren't, yeah. they weren't, they weren't looking at any other... Right, for any cellular damage. They were just looking oh, no. for heat. No, they were not looking for any biological impact uh, at all. In fact, it was original, the original studies on even the heat impact was done on rodents and measuring how long it took to make them disinterested in seeking food. Uh, the studies were done where they took rats and trained them when they were hungry to run a maze in, a, in exchange for a reward of food. So the animals learned how to run the maze. And then they exposed them to enough radiofrequency radiation to cause them 
to stop wanting to eat. And that was the same measure, the same estimated impact of heat that was then extrapolated into the human brain. Kind of curious way of thinking along on several levels, if you think about it. Wow. So a behavioral change is what they, a, a significant behavioral change. And, a, and Yes, and an acute behavioral change. Right. Right. Gee whiz. Hmm. Well, like cell phone radiation, x-rays were originally thought to be safe, and they were used in stores. To, I remember when we were kids, we used to go into a shoe store, and there'd be, you know, you could use A place you could put your feet in, yeah. and we could look yep, at our feet. Too. That yeah. was fun, yep. wasn't it? Sure was fun. Um, we all loved that. So right. I tried and to do that as much as possible when I was a kid. But well, I mean, I, I mean, and you know, in, in this uh, in this conversation that you know that Doug and I had um, previous to um, this morning, we we were saying that even um, low levels of X-rays could be damaging, but but the medical community doesn't really get that. Um, you know, I mean, every time you walk into an emergency room, you know, there's a there's a CT scanner at each <laughs> end, and everybody, no matter what, is being, you know, is being run through those, uh, those CT scan. Um, well, actually, the American College of Radiology is very concerned about that and has is- issued recently a, a campaign called Image Gently, where they are encouraging pediatricians and emergency room doctors to be much more discriminating in the use of CT scans, particularly for children, because mm-hmm. we do know that children's skulls are thinner, their brains contain more fluid, and they're much more vulnerable to the exposures to ionizing radiation from X-ray, but also to the microwave radiation that comes from cell phones, because cell phones basically are two-way microwave radios. Most people don't really appreciate that. I begin to wonder, and, and I, th- I wanted to ask your opinion on this, but if, in fact... We know that standards for cell phones were set for this very big guy not talking very much uh, back almost two decades ago. And in fact, most users of cell phones today have much smaller heads, and that means they're getting exposed to more radiation. Then doesn't that mean that all cell phones today are basically exceeding the standards and they ought to be seized if they cannot be shown to be safe? I mean, isn't that the job of the FCC and the FDA when uh, they're we're, we're, talk, we're talking about a massive recall here, aren't we? Well, it would seem to me <laughs> we, that, that that ought to be in the offing, uh, unless the companies can assure us that the phones are safe when used as generally used. And one of the things that I find increasingly bizarre is that the advertising campaigns, we're about to start, you know, this, the Christmas holiday season, right? You see the advertising campaigns, and you see children holding phones right smack up against their head. Yeah, that's and right. yet the fine print warnings say... Do not cannot, do that. Do, yeah. do not do that. Do not and do that. And you see people proudly taking the phone out of their pocket uh, where it's very close to their gonads, and yet the iPhone 4 says, avoid exposure to the lower abdomen of teenagers. Now, nobody reads those warnings, and think of the people who get phones who don't read English at all, mm-hmm. uh, growing numbers mm-hmm. of them. Mm-hmm. And what are we really uh, dealing with here? Now, Environmental Health Trust, a group that I started, has a number of eminent scientists on our board, and we are deeply concerned about the misleading ways uh, that industry has been handling this. And frankly, we're quite pleased that there's been some progress made here on um, with, with industry issuing some of these warnings, and we need to do a better job of getting that information out to people. That's why you can find all of the fine print warnings for all of the new smartphones on our website at environmentalhealthtrust.org. 
We'll put that link up on our Green Street Radio site too for all those people who are absolutely, are and to we'll us. and we'll actually link that. That's in really our a very interesting point that you've brought up, and I think it, it's a it's a different way perhaps to to go about addressing the problem, which is to talk about truth in advertising and to talk about the responsibility of advertising not to promote a behavior which is is uh, you know not in the best interests of people to say the least. But if, if these warnings are now being required on cell phones, then then it would seem that uh, advertising that flagrantly disregards those warnings ought to be pulled off the air. I, I certainly agree. And let me just say that the advertising issue here is, is quite complicated. In France, it is now against the law to sell or market a cell phone to a young child. It is against the law. Wow. Now, the law was passed last year. You can find it on our website in French. Uh, similar warnings are available in, in Hebrew in the Israeli government website. But uh, the fact of the matter is we in the United States are seeing a surge in encouraging our children to use cell phones. Half of all 10-year-olds um, have cell phones today. Now, in fact, cell phones can save lives. Cell phones are remarkable devices, and I'm not thinking that we're going to end up giving them up. But people do need to understand that there are alternatives to using them in the ways that we've been using them. Using a speakerphone, a headset, or an earpiece substantially reduces your exposure, so long as you do not have the phone next to your body or in your pocket. And this is going to take a major campaign of public education and awareness, which is why I'm so glad that WBAI with listeners are getting to hear about this and, from you guys today. And, and so are we, and we're so glad that you're here. Well, you mentioned Europe, and let's just talk about Europe for a second. It seems as though the Europeans uh, seem to be a little bit further ahead uh, of us in terms of government intervention and government regulation. Can you talk a little bit more about what's happening in Europe and why you think that is? Well, I just returned, actually, from um, Italy, France, and the U.K., and I, I think that it, it's actually a, a more nuanced picture. Laws have been passed in France, um, but they have, if regulations have not been issued for the laws, so it's a, it's a more complicated situation. But the law says that you, it is against the law to design a cell phone specially for young children, something that we do in the United States where we design these phones that are marketed as um, security devices for five- or six-year-olds. I mean, if somebody uh, has their bad intention to take you or five- or six-year-old, the first thing they're going to do is toss away their phone, <laughs> you know, if, if, if they're snatching the, the child, which we, is a horrifying thought. Sure. But the idea that your child will be protected by having a phone and have the wherewithal to know how to use it if they're being snatched is, I think, ludicrous, frankly. Mm -hmm. and, and children need parents and caregivers, and I know it's a very daunting thing nowadays to raise our children safely, but we really have to recognize that the notion of, that the phone is going to give your child, your young child, safety is, is preposterous on its face. In France, it is against the law to design a phone uniquely for young children or to advertise it. And the city of Lyon, um, two years ago, had a huge billboard, which you can find on our website, saying for children under 12, the cell phone is just no you know, just say no to the phone for, for younger mm -hmm. children. The definition of what age is appropriate also differs in different countries. In Israel, they say 16. In um, Bangladesh, it's uh, 17. In areas of India, uh, also, it, it's 17. But the reality is, although there's a lot of warnings out there, we have a lot of work to do uh, in educating the public because we all love our phones. Now, people hate those towers, but they love the phones. And everyone thinks that, well, well, I'll just use it a little bit. But in fact, the average person is on the phone now for a half an hour a day, 
And interestingly, in the Interphone study that was just released finally after five years of debate among the scientists who did the work, they concluded that a half hour of using the phone for 10 years resulted in a doubled risk of brain tumors. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean that if you've been using your phone for a half an hour a day, you're already cooked. (laughs) What it does mean is that you should stop now and use your phone in a smarter, safer way and consider whether you can use your phone less. And I think most of us will figure out ways to do that. You can do something really radical, um, which I, when I talk to people about this, they go, you're kidding me. But you can actually turn your phone off. <laughs> we um, we do recommend that, and uh, and I'm not I'm not sure how many of our our friends and family members have actually um, have actually taken that seriously. But we do recommend just turning it off when you're not actively using it or waiting for a call or you know thinking that you're going to uh, you know to need it. So um, let me just go back a little bit. You said that you were in Lyon. Now Lyon is where IARC is. Is that right? The International right. Agency on Research for Cancer. And right. is this where is this where you were? No, I I was actually in Paris on this trip, and I was meeting with people in in Paris. In fact, David Servon Schreiber, who wrote Mm -hmm. the preface for my book, Mm -hmm. uh, is one of the world's leading experts in uh, cancer prevention. And uh, we were talking about what needs to be done on this issue now, and one of the difficulties we face is the medical community is really ignorant on the science. And and that's not uh, any blame to be assigned here. It's simply Mm -hmm. that we have failed to educate an entire generation of physicians on electrical engineering and what electromagnetic fields and microwave energy can do to the body. Uh, This is not a subject that's taught in medical school or indeed taught very much in colleges. That's why when I testified before the U.S. Senate in September of a year ago, I called for a major research and training program in this field. The reality is very few physicians and scientists know much about electromagnetic fields or electrical engineering. And radiation physicists believe that it's physically impossible for non-ionizing radiation from cell phones because it is weak, which it is. It's physically impossible for such weak radiation to have any biological effect. They are ignorant of new work that's been done that is posted on our website, a new monograph released by the International Commission on Electromagnetic Safety, and it's under our, on our website under Science News. That monograph shows more than 30 different contributions from scientists around the world who have found clear evidence of biological impacts of the kinds of radiation that come from cell phones. Yeah, this is all very fascinating. I mean, isn't it true that, that our medical students today are also not getting um, information about other types of environmental exposures? Uh, we're talking about preventing cancer. So this is just another one of those exposures, and I know that you've been involved in research on some of those, those other things, too. Absolutely. Environmental uh, oncology, of course, deals with the question of what are the avoidable causes of cancer that we can do something about. And one of the things that, that the way this book started, frankly, was I was finishing my other book, which I have talked to WBAI about on several occasions, The Secret History of the War on Cancer. Mm -hmm. In that book, I discovered, frankly, I was stunned to find that in 1936, the world scientists already knew that asbestos caused cancer, that tobacco caused cancer, and that uh, coal mining was a a cancer-causing agent as well. Mm -hmm. And I was stunned to see that that evidence was around in the 1930s, and then the book details the way that the 
findings of the cancer-causing ability of many industrial agents simply got eclipsed as we went to war. And after that eclipse occurred, it took, unfortunately, another 30 or 40 years for the world, again, to be able to pay attention to the fact that coal tars and synthetic organic chemicals can cause cancer in heavily exposed workers, something that was known in the 1930s. And you look at the war on cancer, as I did in that book, and you see that the war starts out in 1971 ignoring tobacco, ignoring asbestos, ignoring the known environmental causes of cancer. And I was honored to meet with Joshua Letterberg, who had been one of those who warned about the poor directions of the war on cancer in the 1970s. Let's just talk a little bit about the World Health Organization. Um, It seems like kind of the good housekeeping organization that you can rely on for unbiased information. Um, How would you rate their efforts at informing the world about cell phone risks? Well, the World Health Organization, of course, has to rely on experts. And I'd say that, unfortunately, the experts here, it's been a little bit like the fox in charge of the chicken coop. There are well-meaning scientists who advise the World Health Organization. Uh, They rely on experts in the field. This is a field, as I indicated before, that very few people really are expert in. And unfortunately, there is no major independent research program underway in the United States on this subject. As an example, the last study on brain cancer and cell phones in the United States of America was published in 2002, and no studies are underway now of any major consequence on this issue. There's one study being conducted by the National Toxicology Program in rodents. It's an important study. The results will be available in 2014. It was first proposed uh, more than 10 years ago, and it took it 10 years to get started because industry has figured out that if you don't want to know, you don't ask, and we have not been doing research here. So in the case of the World Health Organization, they are confronted with a dilemma. Who do we rely on for expert advice? Well, you rely on people, many of whom, not all of whom, but many of whom have worked directly for industry. And even though there are good and honorable people working for industry, uh, you tend to have a certain point of view depending on who pays your paycheck. And uh, that hasn't changed uh, for quite some time. And as a result... The World Health Organization advisory groups have been heavily influenced by industry. In fact, in my book, Disconnect, I document how the independence of the World Health Organization Electromagnetic Field Project has itself been heavily compromised um, by, because the funding provided to run that project went through a hospital in Australia but basically uh, was coming straight from industry. So when, when industry says, for instance, that studies that show the harmful effects of cell phones just can't be duplicated, is it that they're just not doing the studies, or are they just changing the studies slightly to come out with a different result? Because that, that is the, the, the shroud well, let me behind, give you Yeah, let me you know. give you one example, okay? Uh, studies were done actually in the 70s um, showing that if you injected an animal with a blue dye, the brain would stay pink because the brain has a barrier to protect it, the blood-brain barrier, something, by the way, that those nanoparticles probably get through. Mm. That's correct. Mm. Now, (laughs) if you inject an animal with blue dye, the brain remains pink. If you expose the animal to radiofrequency radiation from a cell phone, the brain turns blue. That means you're getting pulsed radiofrequency signals are weakening the blood-brain barrier, opening it up, allowing things to slip through it. That means... The entire toxic chemical policy of the U.S. government today is predicated on something that doesn't exist. It's predicated on the notion that there's nothing else 
affecting absorption and uptake of toxic chemicals. In fact, cell phone radiation will enhance your uptake of any toxic chemical already in your body. That's nowhere being considered in public policy discussions. That's one of the reasons why I wrote my book uh, about cell phone radiation. Um, so, biologically speaking, I mean, if, if, if this is true, then it means that when you are on the cell phone, you have to actually be using that cell phone held next to your head where you have that um, migration of those, um, you know, of those, that, that microwave radiation into the brain. Yes. That's when other toxins that you are being exposed to can actually cross that blood-brain barrier? Yes, but now let me explain something about the science here. Uh-huh. The majority of the studies on this subject looked negative until very recently because they, did, they actually did the following. And this is where science, as you all know, because that's what you cover very well, is complicated. It's genuinely complicated. The study purporting to replicate this work, and this is in my book, Disconnect, did the following. They injected blue dye into the stomach of rodents and then showed uh, and exposed them to cell phone radiation overall and showed no uptake into the brain. Now, the way, you, <laughs> the way the blood circulates is not through the stomach. The blood circulates through the veins and arteries. When you inject the blue dye into the vein or artery, expose the, the animal to cell phone radiation, you get the dye in the brain. When you inject the dye in the stomach and expose the animal, you do not get the dye in the brain. This can't be that hard for people to figure out. You would think that people would look at this and just and, 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 and see how clear this is. And, and well, wh- I'm very fortunate that I've had the advice of experts who've been working in this for 40 years. I've only been working on this for six years. Alan Frey, F-R-E-Y, was one of the world's leading experts in this field for many, many years, and he was able to give me that example. And unfortunately, there are many other examples where there's a phony replication of science. And the bottom line is this. If you do a simple tally of the number of studies that find an effect and don't find an effect, the majority of studies published in this field are negative. The majority of the studies published in this field had been supported by industry. Henry Lai did an analysis of studies and showed that the probability that a finding would be positive or negative depended heavily on who paid for it. So where you stand on any of these issues depends on where you sit and who bought your chair. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Interesting. One of the things that I found most interesting in your book was your description of how microwaves relax these these membranes surrounding the brain. Um, But Let's just talk a little bit more about the the implications of that scenario. Well, you know, and I want to talk about yeah. children also. Because yeah, exactly. Is, would would you, or has anyone found that that children's reaction to this is 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 different from adults? Well, we don't expect it to be different. We just expect it to be more. And let me explain why. Children's skulls are thinner, and their brains contain more fluid. You know, microwaves work by heating fluid or fat, moving, getting the molecules to move faster. We know from studies done by the cell phone industry itself that the microwave signal from a cell phone gets twice as deep into the brain of a child compared to that of an adult. When, when Om Gandhi produced that finding in 1996, he was then working for funding by Motorola. He was the president of the Bioelectrical Magnetic Society. He had received their distinguished award as an outstanding scientist and was one of the world's leading experts in the field. He still is. But when he produced findings showing that cell phone radiation gets 
deeply into the brain of children. He lost all his funding from industry, and despite that, he's one of the few people who was able to continue doing this research. He's at the University of Utah, where he was professor of, and chairman of electrical engineering, and he continued and has continued to publish, most recently in this book from the International Commission on Electromagnetic Safety, evidence that shows that cell phone radiation does get more deeply into the brain of children. And let's talk about what we know about kids' brains. They're still developing. We, need to, we do all sorts of things to protect them. We give them bike helmets and car seats, and you try traveling with a young child, it's like you're traveling with uh, their armor nowadays. <laughs> we protect their brains in so many ways, and we're not protecting them from cell phones. And I have a piece on our website about babies and iPhones, a horrifying combination. People who are wealthy are buying iPhones to give their babies downloading apps for white noise and little games for babies to play, because babies can play with them, and not realizing that that radio frequency radiation does not belong near the head of a baby. It simply does not. Now, has industry come out and be able, been able to refute this, this, uh, this Gandhi's work that showed that the radiation into a child's head was significantly more than adults? Well, it's very interesting. For a couple of years, they, they produced studies that uh, claimed that there really wasn't any difference in absorption into a child or an adult, which, you know, flies in the face of common sense, frankly. Sure. But most recently, um, a scientist working for French Telecom, um, José Viart, and a scientist working in part for, for with industry funding, Niels Kuster and his team in, in um, Switzerland have produced findings which are also in this monograph I mentioned that can be found on our website at environmentalhealthtrust.org. And their findings confirm that children have twice as much exposure as adults and that in the bone marrow that is located in the head, because, of course, the um, bone is part of the head as well, there can be ten times more exposure for children than adults. Now, here we get to the question of, well, so what? What's the proof of any harm? The reality is, if we talk about brain cancer, we're making a mistake, because brain cancer can take 40 years to develop. We know that from studies of the atomic bomb survivors. Of those who survived the atomic bomb, there was no increase in brain cancer 10 years after the bomb dropped. The increase only showed up 40 years later. So the absence of an epidemic of brain cancers now associated with cell phones is what we would expect. Unfortunately, what we're seeing is that even in the Interphone study that has been released after years of debate, there is a doubled risk of brain tumor in the heaviest users. And in fact, in some groups of the very heaviest users, there's even a tripled risk of brain tumor showing up after 10 years. And that's extraordinary because for many environmental carcinogens like asbestos or tobacco, you don't see much of a risk at all after 10 years. It's funny that, they, that the reaction in the press was, you know, the, I don't need to tell you, the headlines were, you know, cell phone study, Interphone study, study yeah. colon, health phones are safe. Right. Well, that's, you know, that's what, that's what industry counts on. In fact, when I gave my inaugural lecture at Georgetown University, the Malloy Lecture, um, to introduce the book, which can be seen on C-SPAN now, and you can find that from our website, um, and I was surprised that industry didn't come. Well, in fact, they were there. What they did is they sneaked into the room after I began to talk and handed out a 12-page um, document with a big headline, No Evidence Linking Cell Phone Use to Risk of Brain Tumors. That's the headline <laughs> on the FDA Consumer Health Information site. 
and it re- reports on the Interphone study. But what it says, it quotes FDA experts um, saying there are still questions on the effect of long-term exposure. It says that's what's in the details. And then at the very end, it says minimizing RF exposure. It tells you what you can do to minimize exposure. Why would you want to do that if there's no risk? Well, I, I think the answer is this. I can't tell you for sure that cell phones are dangerous, but I believe there's good, compelling biological evidence that they can cause disturbances in cells, that they can release markers into the bloodstream that we know predict cancer, and that heavy users are at risk of brain cancer. I can tell you that because of the combined evidence that I look at from cell cultures, from animals under experiments, from case reports that uh, colleagues are developing, and from the limited epidemiology that we have. But what industry has done when I've given public talks that they've come into is to hand out material that would imply that there's no problem at all. And it says, and this is an example from the US FDA website, the scientific evidence does not show any danger to any users of cell phones from RF exposure, including children and teenagers. Mm. Okay? The steps adults can take to reduce RF exposure apply to children and teenagers as well, and then it tells you what to do. Reduce the amount of time spent on the cell phone. That's on the FDA website. Reduce the amount of time. Use speaker mode or a headset to place more distance between the head and the cell phone. And then this is astonishing to me. The FDA website then says, some groups sponsored by other national governments have advised that children be discouraged from using cell phones at all. For example, the Stewart Report from the United Kingdom made such a recommendation in December 2000. Now, are we really saying in the United States of America in 2010 that we can't get our own expert advice that's independent and our government website is going to refer to a 10-year-old advice from Sir William Stewart? We, we have a very, very powerful lobby here in, in, uh, in, in this industry, certainly, but in, in, in most of the other industries that are producing um, and making lots and lots of money um, from selling um, you know, different products. So, Indeed. Um, let me go on and just for fairness tell you that the rest of the FDA website then says on the same point, in this report, the group of experts noted that no evidence exists that using a cell phone causes brain tumors or other ill effects. Well, what does that mean? No evidence exists in humans only. But mm-hmm. if you look, as mm-hmm. I have done in my book, Disconnect, at the biological evidence, if you look at the evidence on sperm count in humans, I mean, that's astonishing evidence that pulsed signals from cell phones have biological effects. Absolutely. Um, let me just ask you about, about someone who can actually sense that there is a cell phone even on um, in a room, and it makes them, it gives them a headache, it makes them, you know, feel ill. Uh, you know, are there people like people who are sensitive to chemicals, we call multiple, who have multiple chemical sensitivity? Are there actually people um, who have these, who have sensitivity to, to microwave um, radiation? I think by your question, you know there are people who um, complain of that problem. And one of them, I was astonished to learn, was the former director general of the World Health Organization, Gro Harlem Brundtland. Uh, she has not spoken out much about this at all, but in 2002, she banned cell phones from the headquarters of the World Health Organization. 
Really? <laughs> and six months later, she was no longer the director. Mm. Now, the reality is it's been very difficult under controlled conditions to confirm the existence of this sensitivity. And that's, it's become you know, a, a real hot potato. And let me tell you, no researcher wants to get involved in it because it's such a tough issue to work on. But there are people who have been brave enough to deal with some of this, and one of them is Darius Levchinsky of the Finnish Nuclear Regulatory Authority in Finland. Um, and he has shown that you can get biological evidence of cell phone radiation in the skin um, so that there clearly is biological impacts. The industry's response is, well, yes, there are biological impacts, but it doesn't mean anything. Okay. Yeah, well, well, this no. this is a tough one. I, I this is gonna this is going to be right up there with I I think the um, the tobacco, um, you know, I don't want to call it a cover up, but um, this is, uh, you know, it's it's so powerful. It's such an incredibly uh, profitable uh, industry. I just I really feel that uh, that we're we're headed for something really really big here. Well, it's more complicated in a sense than tobacco because, you mm. see, tobacco has no positive value except that it gives people a momentary exactly. lift to their brain, and it exactly. does stimulate the brain, um, but it causes a host of horrible health problems. Cell phones have, a, have tremendous benefits, mm -hmm. and frankly, they are addictive or have a habit forming. There are people who would rather leave their home without their underwear than their cell phone. <laughs> Did you do a study on that? <laughs> no, I, I know from my own family, you know. And, and in yeah. fact, the uh, Tasmanian government coined a term nomophobia for people who can't stand not being without their cell phone. Um, the fact of the matter is there's a reason they're called crackberries, and there's even some research uh, done on, on, on this. The reality is that cell phones play a lot of positive values. They have radically improved our ability to respond to emergencies. They've transformed aspects of distance medicine. We can send information over long distances to people in remote areas. Um, they've just recently banned the use of cell phones and email on, uh, on Mount Everest because it got to be such an annoyance for, for everybody, and they felt that their people were putting themselves in danger for the, ways, the silly ways they were using their phones on these dangerous enough climbs. But more seriously, the problem is this. We all of us use, I use cell phones. I, have, I still own two of them. I just would never hold it up to my brain anymore or keep it on my body, and I've learned to turn it off. And um, as a consequence, I'm sure my, my use has dropped dramatically. But I recognize there are people who work in sales for whom cell phones have become indispensable, and they need to know that having an antenna wired into your car is the only safe way to use a phone in a car. And there's a, certainly a debate about safety in cell phones in, in cars. That's why the Secretary of Transportation Ray L. Hood recently recommended uh, warning labels on cell phones because of the danger of texting while driving. I think there should be warning labels on phones for that. And, for the, and the warning labels should also say cell phones emit microwave radiation, reduce direct exposure to the brain or body. And that warning is now going to be required in France. Um, we ought to have that warning in the United States. People have a right to know that these very valuable devices need to be used safely. I think soon we're going to be looking at cell phones in the way that we look at cars, or frankly, some of us look at guns or alcohol. They can kill people. They have profoundly improved many of our lives, but we have to use them safer.
So your, your top recommendation for families uh, who find the cell phone necessary to stay in touch is uh, your top rules and the rules you give your kids for cell phones are what? Use a headset. Use a speakerphone. Speakerphone is, is much better than a headset because you, that means you can hold the phone even further away. Keep the phone off the brain or body. That's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. And you can turn it off except when you want to be on. And using a speakerphone or a headset will substantially reduce your risk. A hollow-tubed headset is even better than, than a regular one. But the worst thing is if you, keep, if you have a headset and you have your phone in your pocket, then what happens is the phone is struggling to find the signal, and it will actually send the signal into the headset and then into the brain. And you don't want to do that. You need to keep the phone away from your body to get the right signal. And, and could you also clarify um, this idea of using a cell phone in a moving vehicle, and that it actually is, is actually taking in more? Right. As the phone moves from one tower to the next, it, it gets a boost in energy. The worst time to put the phone right next to your brain is when you're just answering the phone. When you just click hello and you, if you have the phone right next to your head, it's getting a little extra boost of energy from the tower, and that's going right into your brain. So you want to answer the phone holding it out, saying, you can say hello and hold it right in your hand. And we're not talking about distances of several feet. Just a handheld distance is sufficient. But people need to understand that they can turn their phones off and they don't need to be on their phones as much as many of us are all the time. Um, And, and, you know, I I don't want to run out of time here. There's a few other questions that I would like to to pose to you so that our listeners could get some clarification. What about these SAR ratings, um, these specific absorption rate ratings for various phones? I know that Environmental Working Group has a list on their website, um, you know, rating I think the Environmental Working Group did a good job of letting people know that cell phones emit radiation, which is what the specific absorption rate is a measure of. And all things being equal, if you get a lower SAR phone, that's better than a higher one. But no matter how low the SAR, you should not keep the phone next to the brain or body. And a low SAR will not protect you if you're using the phone four hours a day. Men who use a phone four hours a day have half the sperm count of others. And studies have been done of sperm from healthy men showing that cell phone radiation damages that sperm, reduces sperm count, and produces sicker sperm. You've been listening to Green Street, and our guest has been Dr. Deborah Lee Davis, founder of the Environmental Health Trust and author of the new book, Disconnect. And that's going to do it for this edition of Green Street. Thanks for listening. Green Street Radio is a production of Grassroots Environmental Education. Learn more about us and our programs at www.grassrootsinfo.org or follow us on Facebook at Grassroots Info and on Twitter at Grassroots E-N-V-E-D.